Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Mark, and this is E3, and this is the second week of the series Life on a Wire, where we uh, were inspired by the documentary um, of Man on a Wire, where um, Philippe Pitet uh, walked on a wire between the two twin towers uh, 40 years ago on August 7th, and We've been looking at, at, at this uh, inspirational kind of uh, moment in history and, and looking at it, asking ourselves the question, how can we accomplish great things that God has called us to do? Last week, we talked about the, uh, the phenomenon or the, 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 the Twin Tower kind of moment called a BHAG, which was a big, hairy, audacious goal. A big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG of, of, of something significant that God has called us to do. Our moment in, in life of being a linchpin and, and leaving the world different than how we came into it. One of my... Uh, kind of guiding beliefs in life is that I believe every single person, every single one of you that, that are here, that, that, that God has uniquely designed you and put a seed of a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal in your soul to be able to see something that nobody else can see to make change in places that nobody else can make the change. And I believe that it is incumbent upon uh, us as the church and, and we as, as uh, people of faith to come along one, in each, uh, one another and inspire each other for that seed to take root in our soul and to bloom and to bo- blossom into something amazing. Last week, we've concluded with the moment where Philippe was leaving the safety, the relative safety of standing on top of a 110-story building, right? Stepping off onto the wire. And I want to read his quote again at that moment. I leave the balancing pole I approach the edge, and just just imagine being on top of the Twin Towers, one of the Twin Towers. I step over the beam. I put my left foot on the cable. The weight of my body is raised off my right leg, anchored to the flank of the building. I don't know how you do that. Shall I ever so slightly shift my weight to the left? My right leg will be unburdened. My right foot will freely meet the wire. An inner howl assails me. The, long, uh, the wild longing to flee. But it's too late. The wire is waiting decisively. 
My other foot sets itself onto the cable. And then I love this last line. Faith is what replaces doubt in my dictionary. Before that moment could happen, a lot of other things had to come to pass. He couldn't do it alone, and he had to build a team. And today, we're going to be talking about the beginnings, the first steps, not off the building, but the first steps in realizing what God has called you to do long ago, that He has uniquely designed you to do. Now, this week, on my author's page on, on, on Facebook, I, I asked a question. Um, uh, I asked the question, what holds you back from a big a BHAG or, or a, a vision internally or externally? Now, normally, not many people answer my questions on my Facebook page. It's relatively sad. My mom usually does. That's pretty cool. But we have big success with this one. My dad also uh, replied. So, so if you make a circle like this and say this is your, your BHAG, big, hairy, this is hair, this is not, this is hair, big, hairy, audacious goal. And what people were responding, saying what holds them back were lots of different things. It was money, complacency, the status quo, not having position or power, past hurts or failures, lack of motivation, lack of clarity. But you know what the number one answer was? Fear. And really, you can sum up just about all of them with fear. People said fear of failure, fear of success. One person said reality. Reality. Just the reality of the situation, reality that, that, that this is the fear of, this is just reality and it cannot be changed. Let me tell you about BHAGs. And let me tell you about every great organization, every great leader, every uh, great world changer that you can think about. Think about Gandhi. Think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Think about Steve Jobs of Apple. Think about Billy Graham. Think about these different people who had BHAGs. You know what else they had? Fear. Every single one of them. So what's the difference? What is the difference? Because we know... That action is required, right? For our BHAG to be born, for it to crack the, the shell of the seed and to take root and to grow, action needs to happen. 
but we have this fear. And that is what we have to have in the center is courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, but it is acting despite it. Courage is not being an idiot and not understanding the challenges that you will face, but to step out and proclaim and move forward regardless. This is how great companies are formed like Apple. This is how great movements like the civil rights are begun. This is how thousands of people who hear the gospel in stadiums happen. Because a person having fear and knowing the obstacles says, you know what? My fear of the world staying the same as it was when I came into it is worse than the fear of whatever I am facing and I am going to act. And ladies and gentlemen, that is called courage. Courage. Philippe Petit said this, he says, yes, when his team was pushing him on it, he said, yes, it's impossible. We don't have permits, we don't have power, we don't have permission, it has never been done, it is 110 stories in the air, the wind will be blowing, we could be arrested, it is illegal and it is insane, it is impossible, that's for sure. So let's start working. Action and courage. We're going along with the story of Nehemiah with the Man on the Wire documentary because they parallel in a lot of ways where Philippe Pedet had, had his wire, Nehemiah had his wall. And last week we talked about how Nehemiah, his, his BHAG was born, the beginning of his vision that he He allowed his heart to be broken, and he said, you know what, this is my thing. This is what I am called to do. And so he prayed and he prepared. And we pick up in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. You may want to change, uh, turn to your Bibles there. And Nehemiah is prayed up, and he is ready to go to the king. Now, just a reminder... Nehemiah is a cupbearer. The cupbearer's job is to sip the wine and taste the food to see if it is poisoned. If there was ever an expendable position ever created, this was the one. He had no talents or unique skill set except he could drink out of a cup. He could open his mouth and take a small bite of something. And his other skill set was, if it was poisoned, he could die. Easily expendable. In fact, that was his job description. Expendability. To taste food for the king. So we are not talking about a man of great influence or great power. We are talking about someone who, anybody else who is living could do his job. 
but he had proven himself loyal and trustworthy. And that's what Nehemiah brought to the table. So he comes to the king, and he's serving some wine, and he has this strategy because he's not allowed to talk to the king. So how, how does a man with no power, no influence, but is in the sphere of, of power, influ, influence, how does he get the attention of the king? By taking a risk. By being a linchpin for changing things up. And continues on in, in the scripture, he says, I was serving the king as wine. I have never before appeared sad in his presence. You know why? Because the king had a 100% employee happiness policy. <laughs> and if you were not happy, you were killed or thrown out. I love that policy. No, I don't. That, this is the policy. You will be happy in my presence or you will be dead. Okay. You enjoying your job? Yes. Love it. <laughs> Best job ever, king. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, Nehemiah said. Terrified. Fear. He is doing something that he knows could cost not only his job, but his life. That he is doing something that the most important and powerful man in the world does not like. And that is deeply troubled, sad people around him. So he's terrified. And this is what he says, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are, bur are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And this is the great thing. The king asked, well, is that it? How can I help you? How can I help you? Now, you got to understand that... This is the shifting of the weight moment in the Nehemiah story. When he came in there and he devised the only plan that he had because he didn't have any money, he did not have any power. He just had a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal that the arrow catcher, the wine poison taster, was going to be released to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the only thing that he had was this one long shot, and he took it and showed great courage in it. And the king said, well, how can I help you? And here we get four fantastic leadership principles for all of us because we have all been embedded in our souls of a divine BHAG something to change the world. The first thing he did was state his request. 
And this is what he said, if it pleases the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are are buried. He didn't sell past the clothes. He didn't didn't give them a bunch of details. He knew he was speaking to. And in one sentence, he gives his vision to the king. King, this is how you can help me. Send me to Jerusalem because I want to rebuild the walls. Interesting enough, and I've pitched enough BHAGs to people, visions, and I've, I've mentored a lot of church planners and, and young entrepreneurs that, that the next step that Nehemiah faces is what we all face because when you have a BHAG and you present it, people are going to have questions. And the second thing that the, uh, goes on in verse 6 says, the king with the queen sitting next to him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? And I told him how long I'd be gone, and the king agreed to my request. And the king agreed to my request. You see, first you have to have your stump speech. You have to have your clear vision that, that you can do in a sentence or two. To cast a vision that, that, you know what, even if the person hearing it doesn't have passion about it, they can see your passion. And then be able to answer questions that they might have. And then number three, make sure you ask for everything that you need to be successful. Kickstarter has one of the greatest policies it's an all-or-nothing policy. You ask for a, a, a block of money for a creative project, and if you don't get 100% of that money, you don't get any of it. Why is that a beautiful thing? Because you don't want to receive $4,000 for a $5,000 vision because no one's going to be happy. All or nothing. And this is what Nehemiah does. He says, if it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asis, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls and for a house myself, for a house myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was with me. This is a man who thought through what it was going to take. He thought through, you know what? It's going to be dangerous for me, a Jewish person traveling from Persia to Jerusalem, and I'm going to need a hall pass. So, king, I need a hall pass. And you know what else, king, I need? I need lumber. And if I go into your forest and I start taking the lumber without a letter, your servant is going to kill me. And I don't only need lumber for the vision of rebuilding the walls, but I also need lumber for me and my family so we can build a house. Completely thought through. And so often, 
young leaders and leaders uh, just in general that they forget about that last part. So many times I hear visions of great things and when I ask, well, how are you going to live? Oh, it'll all work out. What, at the homeless shelter? No, it's not going to work out unless you think it through. And here we have Nehemiah thinking it through. If you've ever, and this is a leadership principle, and, and when we are embarking on our BHAG, when we are stepping out, that we absolutely have to know. How are we going to be healthy enough in order to go the distance? Anybody who's ever flown has gotten a illustration or uh, in this. When the flight attendant is standing up there, right? And they are instructing about how everything happens. And, and they say, if the masks, you know, drop down. And I always think, you know, they're going to give instruction. I always think, what, start screaming like a little girl or something? Because that's what I would do. But they're like, no, sir, do not start screaming like a little girl. What you need to do is put the mask on yourself first, right? And then put it on the people around you if they need assistance. And they always have like a little video with, you know, this mom putting on the mask and then putting it on their, their child. Our instinct as people is to, at that moment, help somebody before we help ourselves to build the walls and think it's all going to work out. But the reality is, and what the airlines know and what we need to know as, as leaders, as people who are pursuing the vision that God has called on our lives, that we have God-given needs and need to be taken care of in order for we, us to be good for anyone else. And then the final thing that he did, in uh, uh, started in chapter 2 and, and completed in chapter uh, 3, is he put a team together. And teams are absolutely essential. One of the greatest models of a team that I believe ever uh, came out in the 80s, the A-team. Absolutely love the A-team. Four of the most different individuals that you could ever imagine. They didn't even like each other, right? They were constantly fighting, but each and every one of them had a purpose on the team. Murdoch, the guy with the, the uh, or, or excuse me, Hannibal, the guy with the cigar. He was the visionary. And there was a thing every single week at the end, after everything happened, that Hannibal would say, I love it when a plan comes together. That was his thing. And then you, uh, behind Hannibal there, you have Murdoch, and he was the crazy guy. He liked to blow things up, and he would fly everybody around and everything. And then you had Mr. T, who was B.A. Baracus, that he obviously is the muscle, right? 
he was the tough guy, you know, and he, he would hate to fly and they would knock him out and everything. And one of my all-time, this has nothing to do with anything, but uh, one of my all-time favorite moments in all of TV land was with Mr. T and the A-Team. And I don't know what episode it was, but Mr. T is sitting at a, um, in a cafe and the, the, the server comes up and she says, what would you like? And he says, some coffee. And she says, oh, how would you like your coffee? And he turns to her and says, in a cup, fool. <laughs> in a cup, fool. <laughs> That's so awesome. I love Mr. T. Okay. Again, that had nothing to do with anything, but just sharing a little joy with you. And then uh, on the left there, you have the face who... who who was the smooth talker. He was the guy, he was the front man. He would get all the kind of different things going on. And I think a lot of times that, that people think, oh, teams, you know, need to be all in a circle and all kind of like-minded and, and, and everything and, 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 and compatible personalities. And that's not necessarily the case. It's nice if that does happen, but a lot of times the most effective teams are very different individuals coming together to achieve something that they couldn't achieve on their own. So, thinking about Nehemiah and uh, what Nehemiah did was he shrunk the, 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 the change, shrunk the task. Because a lot of times when you think about a BHAG, it, we don't start, we're fearful of, of starting because it just seems too big. Like rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. How the heck do you do that? So he did some interesting things. He, number one, started to build a team. And he got his first yes. And this is the most important person on your team is the first person to say yes. One of the most powerful leadership lessons that I have ever learned in my life, and I've studied leadership my whole life, is found in a three-minute video uh, that was on a TED Talk uh, about four years ago. And I want to show that three-minute video to you because this is actually how all movements happen in three minutes. Will you watch this video with me? learned a lot about leadership and making a movement, then let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost inspirational. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. So it's not about the leader anymore. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. He takes steps to be a first follower. You stand out and you create ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. The leader is the flint.
It doesn't matter if you want to walk across a tower to, from between one tower and another or start a church or start an organization. This is how a movement begins. So who was the first follower of Nehemiah? The king. The king was the first guy to say yes. Without the king saying yes, not one brick would have been laid, not one, not one uh, uh, fence or, or gate would have been mended. He wouldn't have been able to chop down one tree. He wouldn't even have been able to travel to Jerusalem. Having somebody say yes. Now, it is important with your first follower to ask the right person the right question. When we were uh, starting E3, um, I remember sitting down with uh, somebody who still goes to this church, and, um, and I was asking them to be part of what we were, were going to, to start. And I kept on asking. I asked him the right question to be part of it, but, I, but the, the what, I, I asked the wrong thing again and again and again. I learned such an important lesson about asking the right person the right question. Because I was like, oh, we need this, we need that, we need this. And I remember going through, I'm like, well, would you want to work in children's ministry? And he's like, no. I'm like, well, would you like to serve coffee? No. Well, would you like to play in the band? No. And finally, in frustration, I went through like everything that you would think about a church, like people serving. And I finally said, well, you said you want to be part of this. What do you want to do? And he's like, I want to fund it. I want to give you money. I'm like, that'll work, you know, <laughs> and uh, just write checks, you know, and it'll be good and everything. And, and realizing, you know what? Not everybody in the body of Christ and uh, does the same thing and caring about them enough to know, you know, what is their gifting? What do they bring? How, how do they fulfill the body of Christ? And this is what Nehemiah did with the king. He didn't ask the king to come and, and cut down trees, right? He would have got a no. He didn't ask the king to, to build walls because the king would have said no. He said, King, give me money. King, give me lumber and all this kind of stuff. And the king said, yes. When he got to Jerusalem, he shrunk the task by saying, you know what, we're, don't think about the whole wall. What we're going to do is break this down into 45 different manageable projects. And we are going to shrink this task. And what he did was he got 40 uh, different kind of crew chiefs and broke it down that they were going to do all of these different things. And uh, if you can bring up the map of Jerusalem. Thank you. As you can see, this is a map of, of Jerusalem, and he did something brilliant. He organized people geographically and to their common interest. You see, See the valley gate, for example, to the west, southwest there? People who lived around the valley gate, he didn't send them over to the north up to the sheep gate, sheep gate 
and, uh, and say, you're going to build those walls. Because that would have been inefficient and had them, you know, traveling. But also, you know, this is human nature. And he understood human nature that, that you know what, maybe the mortar was a little loose or something. Or they're doing something. They go, yeah, that should probably hold or something like that. But they, he said, no, you know what? that your common interest is your family and your livelihood, and you're going to build the walls in front of your home by the valley gate. And you're going to build the gate in front of the valley gate. And, and all of a sudden, you know what? That'll hold was no longer something that was talked about in the work crew, right? That it was like, wow, you know what? We want to make sure that we have the best fence and the best walls and all these kind of things. So he organized by common interest and geography. And here's the reality. No matter what, if you're building a wall, you're walking between buildings, you're building a church, or, or, or you are fanning the flame of that seed that God has put in you, that, that we need to do it in fellowship because great things are done in relationship. And we all have our different parts. Eric asked me to, to revive an illustration I used uh, in the book John Bickley and I wrote called The Six Symbols of the Gospel, um, uh, The Peloton of Faith. And a peloton is a, is a cycling group, and if you know, I coach a junior cycling team, and this is something that we talk about a lot. And basically, wind resistance... Uh, is about 80% of the, of the force against you moving faster and faster. People ask me all the time, how do professional cyclists, how can they ride 30 miles per hour uh, for 100 miles? They can't by themselves. They, do, they can in a group, and it's because of the peloton. And what happens is the person up front uh, is taking the majority of the wind, and the people behind him uh, get less uh, resistance so they can go faster. And the farther back you go, the least resistance you have. And then a phenomenon happens, though, toward the tail end, the wind comes back around and actually in the back, in the back uh, tail, that there's actually uh, almost as much wind as there is in the front. Now, this is important for a church and really any organization to understand that, that when we move together, we can go farther and faster than we could on our own. But also, we have to have the right people in the right place in the peloton. That we have to have our, our strongest people in, in the church sense, that would be people who've been following Christ for a lot of years. People who's, who have replaced doubt with faith. And then as you, as you move back, that the people who are new in the faith, you know, to keep them more toward the center. And the beautiful thing is that, that they can go farther and faster than, than they could on their own. But because they're traveling in a peloton of faith, that they can move at the same speed as, as the people who've been following Christ for years but also realizing that 
as people fatigue or something happens and they start to tail off to the back or the outsides, that, that that's a time that, you know what, we all need to be aware that there, there might be a problem. Because I can, I can tell you, I've been in enough cycling races and pelotons where once you get to the back there, you're going to get kicked out the back and you're going to watch the peloton go up and over. And once you lose contact with the peloton, your, your day is over. And it's a very sad thing. And us all working together as, as a peloton of faith that we can go further and farther and understanding that, you know what, at different times we're going to be in different places, but all of us playing our part, because the reality is that we have been called the church to the greatest BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal that has ever been given, and that's from Jesus Christ when he told us to go and make disciples of him in all the nations and baptizing them and teaching them. And in order for that to become a reality, that means that we all need to come together and support. And some of us will lead. And when we get tired, we'll rotate out and other people will lead. And we need to be aware that everyone is with us and going forward in the same direction. Will you guys pray with me?